0: To this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, December 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: Stat Chen joins us to explain how the escalating demand
2: for a potent diabetes drug is putting patients with obesity in a difficult situation. And we'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including another Theranos sentencing and a questionable trend in biotech investing.
0: But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, the COO of STAT. Hematologic disorders comprise a vast category of diseases that affect millions of Americans and have a significant impact on the lives of individuals, their loved ones, and the US healthcare system. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, can you tell us how Genentech is advancing the treatment landscape for blood diseases?
3: Genentech scientists are leveraging our decades of experience to extend and improve the lives of people with blood cancer by continuously delivering transformative therapies, working in close partnership with the hematology community. Our vision is to elevate standards of care and improve patient treatment experiences, which include developing medicines that are chemotherapy-free, fixed duration, and may be administered in an outpatient setting. For more information, visit gene.com forward slash hematology. That's gene.com forward slash hematology.
0: So, to kick it off uh, this lovely Thursday, uh, we had a bit of a conclusion to the era of Theranos news stories. <laughs> uh, Damien, what happened this week?
2: Right. So, Sonny Balwani, the uh, former chief operating officer and number two in command of Theranos and, and ex-boyfriend of Theranos founder, and CEO Elizabeth Holmes got sentenced this week to 13 years, or roughly 13 years, in federal prison. This is, well, I mean, I can't tell anyone whether they should care about Theranos, but this is notable in the context of Elizabeth Holmes, the, the founder and CEO, was sentenced to just over 11 years, and um, in their respective trials... Balwani was convicted on every count with which he was charged of fraud, which is to say defrauding investors and defrauding patients who took Theranos tests um, and, you know, got results that were not terribly reliable for reasons that I'm sure anyone listening to this uh, already knows with respect to whether Theranos' technology worked. But Elizabeth Holmes um, was convicted solely of defrauding investors and not these patients, um, because basically in her trial, prosecutors, the US attorneys, struggled to connect her with the actual day-to-day operations of Theranos' lab, which is where the patient defrauding was really taking place. Whereas with Balwani, who, like I said, was chief operating officer, he presided over that lab and as such was was easier to convince a jury was guilty of, you know, presiding over the frauds that Theranos was doing. So it is somewhat notable that despite that, his sentence was only, you know, roughly 18 months longer than Elizabeth Holmes. And it's worth noting that both of them, or Holmes is already appealing her sentencing of 11.25 years, I think roughly is what it works out to. And it is expected that Balwani will do the same. So Damien, I don't know if there was like an over under
1: on (laughs) how many years uh, Sonny Balwani was going to get. Uh, so I don't know, where does the, the 13 years that he did get, I mean, did people expect him to be sentenced to a longer
2: prison sentence, shorter? What What was the thinking going into this? I, I think that's right around uh, at the middle of the ballpark, which I think is what, you know, Vegas odds uh, <laughs> strive for. I mean, you know, each of them faced a maximum of 20 years sentencing for each of the counts they faced. Now, no one expected them to do you know what would have been more than 100 years in prison mostly because sentencing tends to deal with these things concurrently and um you know 20 years for white collar crime is is very very rare even if it's something relatively egregious as 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 someone might describe Theranos as being um, this is, yeah, I guess this is right in the in the middle, in the Vegas zone, if you will, of what people expected for both of these. Now, again, like I said, they, they'll they appeal. Balwani's attorneys had sought um, simply probation as a sentence for him. I don't think anyone expected them to, to succeed in that regard. Part of Holmes' attorney's case against a lengthy sentence was predicated on the fact that she is apparently currently pregnant with her second child. Obviously, Balwani... Uh, not not pregnant. Didn't didn't have that exact um argument to make. I mean, I, I don't know. We'll we'll see how many years they actually do, and we'll see. You know, I guess more importantly than than the numeral, whether this matters. I mean, you know, I, I, there were so many takes that seemed relatively reasonable at the time that Theranos was a spinally dislocating straw for the camel of tech optimism. And then we've already segued into, you know, we don't need to talk about Sam Bankman Freed on, on on this podcast. We can <laughs> we can alleviate listeners from yet another uh journalistic source that forces them to think about crypto. But like
0: We've already moved on to have our I, next have I, ever,
2: have I ever told you my Sonny Balwani story? I have one.
0: No. I don't know. What is your no. Sunny Balwani story? So
1: so way, way back in the sort of early 2000s when Sonny Bowani, he had founded and run a company, a uh, kind of an online internet software company, like a B2B commerce company called Commerce One. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I was covering said companies, uh, in my internet media reporting days and, uh, and knew him and, and I had interviewed him and actually went to, they had a, at one point they had a very glitzy user conference in Las Vegas that I went to. Um. anyway, that's what just was my your take Sunny on Balwani Sunny Balwani,
0: Balwani at the time? Did you did you foreshadow this?
1: I mean, back then they was like, you know, they were they were like he was like a rock star back then, you know, like a B2B e-commerce rock star.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I, there's something notable because now Sunny Balwani exists to some extent in my mind as a shadow of the. Uh, and I, I should have Googled it, but the actor who played him in the Hulu series did a wonderful job.
0: Naveen Andrews.
2: There you go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And exists in the shadow of um Amanda Seyfried singing the Little Wayne song to Naveen Andrews, because that's what I picture automatically anytime Sonny Balwani's name comes out.
2: Yeah, what a scene. But there was a time where he was truly you know, to, to your point about being in the shadow, he was truly a shadowy figure to the extent that in 2017, perhaps, we published a story that was largely focused on the fact that nobody even, or not nobody, that the public hardly knew what he even looked like. Oh, I remember. Did, I remember
1: doing the reporting yeah, on that
2: story. We dug up his his yearbook photo from Which is <laughs> our
1: our old our old co host Rebecca re- Robbins, re- yeah, who Rebecca just was was like that. relentless in in searching out uh, anything we could find out about Sonny Balwani. And I think it was I think it was Rebecca
2: who found that college yearbook college photo. yearbook photo, yeah. and then a brief testimony that he had given um, to the Arizona Legislature. So you know, it's it's easy to forget now because we've seen. You know, all of the footage from the uh, apparently aborted Errol Morris documentary that Theranos commissioned that was in the HBO documentary about the downfall of Theranos. And, uh, you know, obviously Sonny has had to testify or or not testify, rather, but has had to appear in court. So we all know what he looks like. But there was a time where this guy was seemingly the like, you know, puppet. Well, as, as Holmes attorneys tried to paint him, the puppet master behind the Theranos fraud, who rarely appeared on camera. Again, though, I don't know if this actually means anything. I don't know if either his sentencing or Holmes' sentencing or the final amount of years that each of them serves of of the sentences that they've been handed down. I really don't know whether there is a large-scale read-through to this because, I mean, as long as there's money to be made by stretching and or completely circumventing the truth... People will will do so. I I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I was reminded this morning, and I'll like walk back some of my earlier words about this being a conclusion, a little bit. Um, that there is still this kind of regulatory loophole, like outside of you know the the intricate (laughs) dealings that were happening inside of Theranos itself, in the wider like scope of of medical testing, they did operate in what is a loophole with the kind of fda that they didn't have to prove that their test worked before putting it on the market and actually our colleagues uh sarah Overmull and rachel kors reported today um, that there is now a new bill to try and close that loophole but again yeah to your point damien i mean this is you know theranos unraveled you know more than five years ago now and it's it it really hasn't led to any substantive change, at least like clearly black and white on paper.
1: Well, let's close the Theranos chapter for this podcast, and and maybe forever now that <laughs> that the the present sentences have been dealt out, um, and move on. Uh, Allison, there was I guess some more news on uh, an embattled um, merger deal that it's does not seem to be happening, uh, between Illumina and Grail. Tell us what happened this week.
0: Yeah. So, um, it came out this week that the European commission, the, the regulators that, um, kind of oversee antitrust issues, um, on that continent, you know, uh, across the ocean, um, basically went to Illumina and said, we do not approve of this acquisition and this merger with Grail, the um, liquid biopsy company that they announced um, they were going to be actually absorbing last year in a $7 billion deal, I think it was. Um, Illumina had gone ahead and kind of closed this acquisition before really getting the sign off from either the European or the American regulators and you know in the months and and years it, it's almost a year since they closed that and they said, you know we are tying a bow on this deal yay for us um it, it's it's kind of backfired on them a little bit. I mean both the the European and American regulators have said, have raised issues, um, and now it's at the the point where Illumina is having to decide what they're going to do with Grail and and looking into divesting this company.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because it has been sort of a slow motion <laughs> car crash, regulatorily, um, with this notion of of absorbing Grail, but it's also been incredibly costly for Illumina, which, despite not waiting for the approval of global regulators before closing the deal, they have been basically operating Grail at arm's length very in a, in a very costly manner in order to, I guess, preemptively appease those regulators, which seems like a, not so much of a worthwhile effort considering what you just described that uh, the the European European Commission has, has decided. And so what's notable, though, is despite Illumina's insistence that first of all, buying Grail is a good idea and that integrating Grail into its business will be accretive in the long term, Wall Street has already kind of turned its back on this deal such that whenever Illumina says something, as they did this week, or discloses something that suggests they will eventually have no choice but to unwind it, the stock price tends to go up because I think investors have wrapped their minds around, this is... This is going to be this is going to in the long term be a failed overture at buying into the field of liquid biopsy and there is a lot more optimism about Illumina's uh non-grail efforts to grow its business to where they had a an investor day the first one in some number of years a few months ago where they, you know, disclosed a new project to make genomic sequencing cheaper when done on on a large scale, and some new technologies to maybe further advance their, not monopoly, but dominance of the market for such sequencing. And that generated much, 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 much more excitement among at least analysts and and presumably investors because their stock price went up um, than anything that they've ever tried to do (laughs) in liquid biopsy has done. So... the whole notion of acquiring and integrating Grail seems to be something that exists solely within the executive offices of Illumina down there in Southern California whereas the rest of the world seems to have moved on that this is going to be a sort of tilting at windmills endeavor that we will all forget in time
0: exactly and i'm i'm left wondering who exactly would be interested in now acquiring Grail. Like this this acquisition, we kind of had a, a one-two punch when this acquisition was announced because around the same time, Exact Sciences announced that it was going to be acquiring another liquid biopsy company, Thrive Earlier Detection. And, you know, that acquisition, of course, has has not had the same regulatory concerns, um, largely because the I think the regulatory concerns for the Illumina Grail deal were all circling around the fact that most of these these liquid biopsy companies rely on you know Illumina's sequencers, and so there was there was a concern that you know Grail's test having you know a or Grail's test could have a like preferential or even you know exclusive um, access to Illumina's sequencers um, through this acquisition but outside of what's been happening like you said in in those offices the rest of the world you know exact and thrive are kind of moving forward you know with with their liquid biopsy test um, the rest of the market doesn't feel like it has been that interested or like the the fervor of liquid biopsy testing in the like 2019 2020 era feels like it's kind of, you know, dissipated a little bit from my perspective. We you know we still get new companies launching, but I think it's very clear the commercial you know needs of launching these new types of tests that you know anybody who decided to get involved with this, this would be a big endeavor which then leaves Grail as an asset that I don't feel like there's a clear path forward for now looking at this potential divestiture
2: so moving on to a curious development and what seemed like an emerging trend although perhaps that will cease in the world of how biotech companies get money to do the biotech things that they must do in order to get future money in general investors can buy shares of a biotech company, whether on the open market or in a direct offering, based on information that is in the public domain. A company has a drug, it seemed to work in a past trial, it may in fact work in a later trial, and you can uh, buy stock according to your relative optimism that, that that drug will succeed. However, we have seen emerging in in recent times a wrinkle or, well, a refutation, perhaps, of that system in which investors are invited to buy stock after they've learned information that the rest of us, that the public does not get to know. Um, And that seemed to come to a head this week, that, that mini trend. Adam, what happened with Gossamer Bio and how does it fit into this very vague and probably poorly articulated system that I just
1: described. So, Damien, what you are referring to is what is kind of colloquially been referred to as blinded data pipes. Now, people who are sort of savvy to the ways of Wall Street, I hope some of our listeners are, probably have heard about pipes before. Pipes are, well, pipe stands for private investment in public Entities. It's essentially a privately negotiated uh, transaction between publicly traded companies and uh, accredited investors. So think about that being think about that as a hedge fund um, who basically negotiate uh, negotiate a deal, sale of stock in a private negotiation in a private deal, usually at a discount. To the market value, so when somebody does a deal like this, um, usually there's an inducement, uh, you know, so you're getting the stock at some discount to the market price, and and typically people think about pipes as financing vehicles for companies that are either in some way distressed, so that they can't raise normal, they they can't raise money in a sort of normal way, or in market conditions where you know kind of typical secondary offerings are just not. Uh, not available, right? Um, So what's happened recently in biotech is, again, I call them blinded data pipes because the inducement in these financing deals is not necessarily cheaper than market stock, but access to, as you mentioned, Damien, access to confidential, uh, undisclosed clinical trial data, uh, these hedge funds in exchange for you know giving tens of millions of dollars to said biotech company basically get it sort of a, a preview, get a sneak peek at clinical trial data that the rest of us don't get to look at and uh, and you know that and, and, and for that privilege they you know a turn over a bunch of money, um, but they also have to sign you know confidentiality agreements um, and non-disclosure agreements where you know they can't necessarily trade on that data immediately. But still, it kind of gives them this sort of inside edge as to sort of what's going on inside the company. Um, And so you mentioned Gossamer Bio. Uh, Gossamer Bio did uh, just such a blinded data pipe back in July, where uh, they raised about $120 million from a group of seven hedge funds. Those hedge funds, after uh, agreeing to nondisclosure agreements and uh, a lockup on those shares, they got access to blinded data for a drug that Gossamer was developing for a disease called pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, fast forward to this week, uh, Gossamer released the results from the study of this drug for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And, well, it didn't go all that well. Uh, even though the study sort of technically hit the primary endpoint, uh, the data were pretty mediocre. The treatment effect was. A lot less than people had expected, and the stock got hammered. Uh, Its that it was down 60, 70 plus percent over the last couple of days. So. What's interesting about all of this, you know, I mean, again, those sorts of things happen in biotech all the time, right? We know, you know, unfortunately, drugs don't work, or they don't work as well as expected. And stock prices get are really volatile because of that; they go up and they down, they go down. Um, but I, I thought what was really interesting about this deal was, again, this this blinded data pipe that Gossamer did, because when they did the deal back in July, and they put out a press release about this, you know, a they didn't mention anything in there about the fact that the hedge funds got access to this information, these data. Um, but they certainly did sort of play up the fact that, you know, this deal sort of validated the drug and validated their approach. And sure enough, I mean, if you look at the stock price of Gossamer after they did that deal, the stock went up because I think a lot of other investors sort of assumed that, well, if these super smart hedge funds are buying into this ahead of a clinical trial, that they must have, you know, they must be positive and optimistic about what the what the what the, the outcome of the study is going to be. And so the sort of the stock went up. Um. so, again, it's, you know, these deals when these deals happen now and we're seeing more and more of them. And this is not the only example. There have been several of these types of deals. Um. It, it kind of leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth because, like you said, Damien, it you know, there's a there's a sort of a degree of unfairness about this. You know, this is sort of it's not necessarily selective disclosure. It's not insider trading. It's not illegal. These are legal deals, but it just seems like there's a sort of unfairness, right? Where you're giving access to, you know, pretty important confidential information to sort of a group of investors and excluding everyone else from the same information.
0: Adam, how did the the lockup work? I mean, like in this Gossamer bio example.
1: Yeah. And, and to be clear, like I said, this is not insider trading. So it's not like the you know it's not like these hedge funds who got access to these this these you know material sort of non-public information could then immediately trade on it. So in exchange for for doing that, you know they sort of go mm-hmm. over they go they sort of go over the wall. They sign confidentiality agreements and they sign these lockups, which says you can't trade on this information that you've just been given. Right now, what's the catch here with the gospel one, which is interesting, was is that you know they signed this deal in July, but the lockup on the information that the hedge funds were given expired on October 1st. So after October 1st, the hedge funds were free to trade shares of Gossamer. And if you actually look at the stock price, you know, kind of if you look after November, October 1st the stock starts to trade down. So do we know whether these hedge funds were actually like getting out of the stock because you know they had already made money right they could lock in profits you know the stock was like at seven dollars in July when they did the deal the stock went up to like 1213 dollars in you know September October. So you know were these hedge funds now selling those shares locking in their profits because they didn't really want to hold the stock? When the study was announced, we don't know that because that type of information has not been disclosed. So we don't know. But again, it, you know, it 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 sort of it definitely sort of, you know, it supports us again, this idea that this is a group that, you know, sort of had this, you know, they had an edge. Right. They They were able to sort of get in and get out, make money on information that the rest of the market doesn't have.
0: Wow. And, and you said that this is happening with other companies. This Like the oh, Gossamer yeah. example is not like a one-off.
1: Oh, no, no. There was another company that just uh, earlier this fall, same thing happened. It happened in a more compressed time period. It's called Immunic, where they did the same thing for like, you know, they did a they did a blinded data pipe. They A bunch of hedge funds, about a dozen hedge funds bought into the deal. They had access to blinded data on this Immunic drug. <laughs> Literally 10 days later... The study was announced. It failed. The stock plummeted. Um, those hedge funds that bought into that deal, they they, they got really hurt because the, that stock that they bought couldn't be traded. Like it was it was the, <laughs> the time between the deal and when the, the study read out was so short that their stock that they bought had not been registered. So they actually got caught owning all that. So, oh, wow. But again, it, it's just kind of interesting that, you know, these, you know, it, I remember the good old days when, you know, when, uh, hedge funds or, you know, healthcare investment funds, you know, they made money for their clients by being really smart and doing due diligence on stocks and, and, and on drugs and kind of picking, picking the best stocks. And, you know, if they were good, you know, they beat the market, right? Their returns were better than the market. It just seems like this is just a continuation. These blinded data pipes are just like another way in which healthcare hedge funds are sort of going to great lengths to try to figure out how to make money because they can't make money picking stocks. You know, it's, it's like this, just add this to the list of SPACs or crossover funds, you know, or just, you know, offering debt to companies or investing in private companies, you know, where like they just, this is just another way of hedge funds to try to make money in healthcare slash biotech, um, and so far, it doesn't seem like it's worked all that well. Okay, although again, with the with you know with the case of Gossamer, well, you know, will be really interesting if we ultimately end or find out is if the funds that bought into that pipe, you know, got out before the stock crash. That's what we kind of really want to know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to Adam. I'm sure that you are going to <laughs> update us when we we know specifically what those those hedge funds did.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, to your point about the you know, tooth and nail struggle to beat the market for these investors. It also is met by the probably commensurate anxiety of the companies themselves struggling to raise cash um, in this market. So yeah, it's just (laughs) too desperate. I mean, I think
1: think it's, yeah, I mean, to your point, Damien, I think it's no surprise that we're seeing these blinded data pipes. We're seeing more of these in a market where, you know, financing has been really hard. Companies are having a hard time raising money through traditional secondary offerings you know we know ipos have kind of all but uh all but stopped so yeah i mean it's no surprise that this is happening now it's just just this goes this shows you sort of the extent to which companies and their bankers need to go in order to raise money
2: One analyst called them the electric vehicles of biopharma for this decade, end quote. A new group of medicines first developed for type 2 diabetes have led to dramatic weight loss for people diagnosed with obesity, leading Wall Street to forecast tens of billions of dollars in sales for the years to come.
0: The promise of those drugs has led to a surge in demand, creating a complicated situation for patients, physicians, and the pharmacies tasked with doling out these widely desired medicines.
1: That's Elaine Shen had a story this week about how the latest of those medicines has found itself in a curious situation that has frustrated some patients, and she joins us now to talk about it. Elaine, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So Elaine, your story focuses on Munjaro, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a drug from Eli Lilly that is approved to treat diabetes, but which is already being prescribed off-label to patients diagnosed with obesity. What's the situation?
3: So broadly, the class of drugs that Munjaro falls in, which are GLP-1 receptor agonists, have seen a huge amount of demand, in part since their weight loss effects have been advertised and discussed widely, like on social media and by some celebrities. That's led to shortages in several of the drugs in this class. Eli Lilly said Munjaro itself is not currently in a shortage, but it has made some moves to tighten access. So Lilly had a coupon program for Munjaro and recently made changes requiring patients a test that they have type 2 diabetes to use the coupon. Some pharmacists are also now checking if patients have a diabetes diagnosis before filling scripts. And that's left patients who have obesity but not diabetes in a really difficult situation since they've looked to Manjaro as one of the few effective treatments they could use, but now they're not being able to access it.
0: Yeah, you spoke to some patients who are caught up in the middle of all of this, who had once been able to afford Manjaro but now have to pay the fullest price, um, and some of whom are even pre-diabetic, or I think you, you spoke to a woman who had gestational diabetes previously during a pregnancy. You, how are they navigating around this situation and reacting to it?
3: Yeah, I think those patients are pretty frustrated and disappointed. They had tried to lose weight Really hard through various different scenarios, but those methods weren't really working. And Munjaro was something that seemed to really work from them. Um, the thing about Munjaro is this is a drug that's meant to be taken over the long term. So now that they're not able to access it anymore, they're going to see their weight and all the related health issues come back, which would be really frustrating. And the full list price for Munjaro is around $1,000 a month. So it's pretty expensive and can be. A pretty big barrier. Like one of the patients I spoke with is trying to is thinking about maybe taking on another job just to pay for the drug out of pockets. And she really wants to keep taking it.
1: So Elaine, zooming out, Monjaro is the latest in a series of medicines that can both reduce blood sugar for patients with type 2 diabetes and lead to weight loss for those diagnosed with obesity. You know, with demand leading to these intermittent shortages, is this pitting two patient groups against each other?
3: I don't think anyone wants to be pitting two different types of patients against each other. But I think it's hard um, when you have these potential shortages and everybody in the healthcare system has to make decisions on how to address that. One of the doctors I spoke with feels like it seems like there is a sentiment of wanting to save the medication just for people with diabetes. And she's frustrated with that because, as we discussed previously, there's so much overlap between the two diseases. Um, You know, like a lot of people with obesity have a high risk of developing diabetes. And um, this doctor feels like the sentiment of wanting to save the medication just for people with diabetes is coming from a place of not really viewing obesity as its own disease that's also in need of treatment.
2: So yeah, that exact sentence uh, brings me to the can opener and a can of worms, which is the concept of obesity as a disease, which as you know, there is not only the viewpoint of some of the patients with whom you spoke and some of the physicians who would say that the healthcare system is reluctant to view obesity as a disease, but there is also a large group of people who are reluctant to accept the notion that obesity, as it's defined, is a disease, and and that being... A certain weight or a certain BMI, body mass index rather, means that one is sick. And I guess in order to make that a question, a lot of this stuff kind of rolls a hand grenade into some societal issues that we have. And the advance of Munjaro and other treatments that, you know, have similar biological targets and have similar promise of uh, weight loss in clinical trials are forcing upon people, I think, a conversation of like, is obesity a disease? I don't know, did did that come up in in the course of your reporting?
3: Yeah, I think that it's definitely still something that the entire healthcare system is grappling with. Um, You know, like just on a micro level, a lot of doctors are still just telling patients, just eat eat less and exercise more. Um, And, you know, more broadly, the issue of obesity as a disease is a difficult question to confront because that comes with the implications of a lot of costs for the entire healthcare system to treat the amount of people in the U.S. with obesity. Like currently, a lot of insurers don't cover, um, drugs targeted f- for treating obesity because they view them or classify them as lifestyle drugs rather than medically necessary. Um, But I think in general, it's starting to change. And doctors are more so recognizing we need to try other methods. And um, drug makers are also increasingly focusing on this as an area and um, trying to develop drugs in this area.
0: Well, Elaine, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to having you come back to talk more about what's happening with drug development in obesity.
3: Thank you so much.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
2: We'd
1: love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're enjoying Damien's gravelly voice. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: <clears throat> and if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: We'll see you next week.